I want to tell you a little bit about Jesus Christ this morning as we continue in our series about uh, basics of the biblical or basics of the Christian faith. The first thing I want to do is I want to start broad and work in, but the first thing I want to say is that Jesus is the man in 106 million. The man in 106 billion, I should say. There are approximately 245 human beings born each minute. That's approximately 350,000 each day. When you factor in the current death rate, the world's population is growing at around 80 million people a year. It's estimated by 2010, the world's population will come in at just under 7 billion people. Given today's technology and ability to gather statistics, these are reasonably reliable facts. But what is more difficult to work out is how many people or human beings has ever, have ever lived on the planet. Nobody can be sure, but estimates right now, I think, well, as far as up to 1998, estimates were that 106 billion people have walked on this earth. Of those billions of people, by far the vast majority of them live and end their lives in relative obscurity. For many, we are fortunate to have a name, but some, have done, uh, some though, have done a little bit more. They have left some evidence of their stay on earth. But then there are even a, a smaller number of people who many of us know about. Their achievements and acts have affected thousands and maybe even millions of people, both during their lifetime and after their death. But finally, there are a very few people, and by that I mean a very few people, who have had a major impact on human history or the history of the world as we know it. A few of them have been rulers, some have been writers, a few warriors, some politicians, a couple business leaders we might throw in there, and certainly a couple sports people. But some of these uh, are world famous and their names have become household names to us. But of the 106 billion people that have ever walked on this earth, one person stands out from all the rest. No other person has attracted so much attention, devotion, criticism, adoration, or opposition. His words and actions have been studied by millions of people. Even today, 2,100 years after his death, there is never a single moment when millions of people are not reading what he said and trying to apply the significance of his words and life to their lives. And that person is Jesus Christ. John Blanchard writes in his book, Will the Real Jesus Priest Stand Up? That even with this preoccupation of Jesus, or when you take this preoccupation with Jesus and put it alongside some amazing facts, it makes Christ even stand out more. Nobody knows the exact date of his birth, but world history is divided by it. We have what happened before Christ, or B.C., and we have what happened in the year of our Lord, or A.D., Adidomini. He never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than anyone else in history. He never painted a picture or composed any poetry or music, and yet no single life has been the subject of more songs, plays, poems, pictures, or other forms of art. He never raised an earthly army, but millions of people have laid down their life for his kingdom. In 2006, Gordon Conwell Seminary estimated 
that over 171,000 Christians are martyred each year. That's almost 500 a day. That's more than is sitting in this room today. With the exception of a brief time in his childhood when he went to Egypt, his travels were limited to a place, a, 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 a square, square uh, miles that is smaller than Maine Island, but his influence is literally worldwide. He never spoke to more than a few thousand people at any one time, and yet Christianity today is said to have more than 2 billion followers, or almost 30% of the Hearst population. The Jesus film, based directly on the words of Christ, has now been produced in over 100 language, languages and has already been seen by more people than any other film in history. Jesus Christ really is one in 106 billion. One historian wrote, Jesus, the seeming failure, has had more effect upon the history of mankind than any other of its race who has ever existed. Jesus is one in 106 billion. He was also, though, the man who was there. The man who was there. I simply don't want people to assume that Jesus existed. It's important that we come to grips with the fact that he is more than the figment of a, of a small group of people, a figment of their imagination. He's certainly more than a mythical figure whose legend continues to build as more and more people hear of it and add to it. He was a man who was here on earth. When it comes to secular sources, we have a few. It's not a lot of evidence, but it's enough evidence. There are five individuals who make clear references to the historical Jesus as they write their histories. This may not seem like a lot to us, but when we consider that very little literature of the time has survived, and then secondly, that historians were concerned about events on a world scale and of big uh, sort of scopes, and at that time Jesus was an obscure uh, Jewish boy living in a, in a very small town, it doesn't surprise us that there weren't pages and pages devoted to describing Jesus Christ. But what is significant about the evidence that we do find in these secular sources is that while four out of the five were strongly opposed to Christianity, and they did not really have a good word to say about it, they never once questioned the historicity of Jesus Christ. But by far the most significant source of the historical Jesus is the Bible. And this morning, we don't have time to go into a defense of the Bible and its reliability. I would say, though, that I am absolutely convinced, both from what secular uh, um, uh, um, people who study, it's gone from my head, but both secular and Christian individuals who study documents and who study texts and who put these things together, that there is unrefutable evidence that the biblical manuscripts that we have are accurate and trustworthy. And so I just have to assume that you will make that same assumption. Although if you come to me, I can send you to lots of places to read to determine that on your own. But the trustworthiness of the Bible is demonstrable for anyone who will consider the evidence. My point simply at this stage of the game is to affirm that Jesus was a man who was here. He walked on this earth. He was a real historical person. And you shouldn't let anyone convince you that Christianity can stand without the historical Jesus. There are people who will want to tell you that it can, but it can't. 
It's like the group of boys who gathered together and, uh, for a soccer game, only to find that nobody had brought a soccer ball. Never mind the ball, one of the boys shouted. Let's get on with the game. That's the same as saying, never mind Jesus, let's get on with Christianity. It's absolutely impossible. You can't have one without the other. So Jesus was one man in 106 billion. He was a man who was here. Thirdly, he was the man who was expected. The man who was expected. At Christmas time, we sing a lot of carols, and one of the songs that we often sing is, Come Thou Long-Expected Savior. The birth of Jesus was and is the culmination of those expectations. He is the culmination of the expectations and hopes of the Jewish nations and the Gentiles who had put their faith and trust in the Jewish Savior. From the beginning, back in the Garden of Eden, and I've said for the last three weeks now how important it is that we believe in Genesis 1 to 11 and the historicity of Genesis 1 to 11. But back then in the Garden of Eden, God gave the first promise to send a Savior in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promised at one time or one day that he would break into history by sending a great deliverer, the Messiah, who would meet man's desperate need, which we talked about last week, and he would establish the kingdom of God. And so back at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, at the beginning of this creation in this world, God promised to send a deliverer after mankind had sinned. Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. In other words, Jesus was saying to them, the scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, bear witness to me. Jesus, in another occasion, in an astounding um, uh, turn when his ministry was just beginning, he went into the temple to worship, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In another place, Jesus, talking to the religious leaders, said, if you believed in Moses, you would believe about me. For he wrote about me. Jesus did not hesitate either to claim the claims of the Messianic Psalms as they applied to him. He also claimed the term Son of Man that Daniel used, and he used it more than 78 times to refer to himself. The Bible makes prophecies about his family tree, about who his father and mother would be. They make prophecies about his place of birth, the kind of ruler that he would be, a prophet, a priest, and a king, what he would do and how he would die. And one person calculated the odds of only 48 messianic prophecies, and I'm not sure why they picked 48 because there's hundreds of them, but the odds of only 48 messianic prophecies being fulfilled in one person by chance, to be one in ten to the 157th. Another has said to reject the Bible's claims that Jesus is the Messiah is to reject a fact, perhaps more, or prove perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Which one of us this morning can say that thousands of years before we were born, our birth would be predicted, 
the place of our birth would be predicted, how we would live would be declared, and where and how we would die. Jesus fulfilled the expectations and the hopes of many. He was expected. Second, or fourthly, he was the man with no beginning. I'm just painting a picture for you of who Jesus Christ is. He is the man with no beginning. And here we touch on a profound mystery, but it's part of the Christian faith. And I briefly mention it because it's essential to this question that we're considering. The writer to Hebrews tells us that Jesus was after the order of the priest Melchizedek, who he then goes on to say was a man without beginning and end. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. In other words, Jesus had no beginning. He always was. How do we put all this together? Well, we begin by talking about the birth of Jesus. It was unique. And what was unique is not how Jesus left his mother's womb, but how he entered it. Jesus was conceived in his mother's womb without sexual intercourse, without any injection of male sperm, without any rupture of the hymen. His birth is what scripture refers to as the virgin birth. And this type of birth was predicted in scripture and recorded by Matthew and Luke. His birth or his, his conception was special and different from all other conceptions. And it came about through the remarkable, life-giving operation of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that's absolutely critical to the person of Jesus Christ. And the virgin birth is necessary for at least these two reasons. In a moment, we will see that Jesus is God. That he had existed from before the foundation of the world. And so the virgin birth was the way that Jesus entered into humanity without being tainted by a sinful nature with which we looked at last week. And in another way, man could not produce God. The union of a man and a woman could not result in God. And so the virgin birth is absolutely critical for maintaining the biblical truth that Jesus is God who took on human flesh. But secondly, Jesus had to be fully human, but he could not have had a sin nature. Jesus was like Adam before the fall, and so he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb so that he would not have a sinful nature, because if he had a sinful nature, he would be like the rest of us who by nature were sinners and under the wrath of God. And so the true humanity of Jesus is absolutely critical, but as we will also see, the sinless humanity of Jesus is also critical. And that's where we go next, to the man who got it right. And I simply want here to affirm what many of you know and believe, and it's that Jesus was fully human and he lived a perfect life. There are so many scripture references, and, and you may have to come get them from me or or email, and I can send you my sermon notes, and I won't be able to read them all. But it's important that we establish the fact that Jesus was a human being. We've referred to it a number of times already. And first, we would turn to Luke. And Luke has a genealogy there, and he traces the descent of Jesus back to Adam. Once again, loved ones, here we see the importance of taking Genesis 1 to 11 literally. 
If Adam wasn't a real historical person, then the genealogy of Jesus is a lie and a hoax. And so is, is, is Paul when he writes in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that from one man, God created all mankind to live on the face of the earth. And so Luke makes it very clear, very clear that Jesus traces his ancestry back to Adam. The point is, Jesus was human. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. Jesus had a physical life, just like you and I experience. He had a normal birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He grew and matured physically. He hungered. He thirsted. He slept. He tired. And he died. He also had an emotional life. He loved. He had friendships. He sorrowed. He showed compassion and empathy and experienced turmoil and distress. And he also had a spiritual life. He prayed. He worshipped. He read and meditated on Scripture. He knew what it was to be tempted. He was in all ways fully human like you and I are, yet without sin. And that's where we come to the fact that he was the perfect human being. And it was absolutely critical that he be perfect in order to die in our place for us. And enemies and friends alike affirmed the innocence and the guiltlessness of Jesus. Three times Pilate declared, I find no guilt in him. I find this man innocent. I find no sin in him. Judas also declared Jesus to be innocent. Peter declared him to be spotless. The thief on the cross said, we are dying justly for what we deserve. This man is dying and he did nothing wrong. Jesus also affirmed his perfection. God declared his full pleasure in his life twice at the beginning of his ministry and, and, and at the transfiguration when he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the perfection and the innocence and the purity of Christ is affirmed by enemies and friends alike and certainly by his Father. The writer to Hebrews puts it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things. That's a way of saying Jesus had flesh and blood like you and I have. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It was absolutely critical that Jesus be human in order to be our substitute, but it was absolutely critical that Jesus be a perfect human being so that he could represent us as a faithful and merciful high priest before God and be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's not a word that we often use in our day-to-day -day vocabulary, propitiation. It's a, it's a word that's found four or five times in the Bible, and it's a word that simply, simply, it's not simply, but it's a word that means Jesus bore the wrath of God upon himself that was due us. And the way that he did that was because he was the perfect, spotless sacrifice who died in our place. It's absolutely critical, loved ones, that we understand Jesus was fully human, perfectly human, if we are to understand that he is our substitute. 
He's finally, and there is more, but we'll save him for another time. He's the man who was more. The man who was more. Just imagine, Jesus grows up as a carpenter in Galilee. Then when he is 30 or so years old, he begins to, he begins to teach as a Jewish rabbi. His disciples are all Jews, and they have been taught from childhood that there is only one God, and they should worship God alone. They should never worship idols, certainly never worship a mere man. Somehow, though, during the next three years or so, all these Jewish disciples and many more people besides are convinced that Jesus is God and he deserves to be worshipped as God. They have known him intimately as a man, have walked and talked and eaten with him, and yet they have come to worship him. That is truly amazing. And in fact, that is what many of us have done this morning. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Many of us here this morning have declared that Jesus is God. One of the, the names that we are so familiar with, uh, and particularly around Christian, or Christmas time, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. One of his names is a declaration of who he is. He is God with us, light of the world, you step down into darkness. He existed beforehand. He's the light of the world. God is light, and in him there dwells no darkness. Light of the world. God, you step down into darkness. It's no exaggeration to say that his, that, that his deity is central to the doctrine of Scripture. And one verse that says this so clearly is 2 Corinthians chapter 5.19. And I, 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 I just can't get my head around this concept. But it says there, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Do you know, loved ones, that God died for you? I can't figure that out. It was God who bore the penalty for our sins. It was God who stood in our place. It was God who bore the wrath of God upon himself. Because no human being could have ever done that. Astounding stuff. Take away the deity of Christ and the Bible falls apart into meaningless pieces. C.S. Lewis wrote, The doctrine of Christ's divinity seems to me not something stuck on which you can unstuck, typical C.S. Lewis, but something that peeps out at every point so that you would have to unravel the whole web to get rid of it. The deity of Christ is intricately woven throughout Scripture. And this truth lies at the heart of Christianity. And so we have this amazing fact that Jesus while true man, while fully human, is also fully God and true God. And the evidence of Scripture uh, that Jesus was God is pervasive. It's not just a few disputable texts that Christians hang on to. Rather, it's found on nearly every page of Scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus, at a, in at least six occasions, claims to be God. In one place, he's talking to the Jews, and they say to him, well, you are not yet 50 years old, which I've said before. That attests to the weight of the world that Jesus bore, because we know he was only 30-some-odd years then. 
But so strained was he by the responsibility of carrying our sins, of the task that God had set before him, that he had aged in his looks. Isaiah says, you had no beauty that we would look upon you. You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you know what he's saying there? I am comes from Exodus chapter 3, 14, when Moses is talking to God, and God says to him, I am. Jesus is declaring there, I am God. And that helps me understand another place in John 18, 4-6, when Jesus is just about to be arrested, and knowing that all things would happen, he came forward and said to the arresting party, who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, he who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now first, that, that word he has been added to the Greek text to help us make sense of it. The Greek text simply says, I am. And that explains why the, the whole crowd that had been sent to arrest him fell over backwards. Because for that split second in time, they saw God. And Jesus said to them, I am God. And it just knocked them back from their standing position to a lying down position. So many more. In his teaching, Jesus claimed divine authority and the authority to forgive sins. His miracles, both in their sheer volume and the authority behind them, and some that were the prerogative of only God alone, affirmed his deity. People worshipped him, as we did this morning. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. They worshipped him, and he never silenced them. He was called names which could only rightly be attributed to God. The most significant of all was Lord. Over 600 times in the New Testament, he is called Lord. And that is a direct translation from the Old Testament word Yahweh, which was the sacred word for God, which the Jewish people would not even pronounce. And so he is called Lord and so many other names that were referred to God and God alone. Statements made of God are also made of him. In the book of Revelation, at the very beginning of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. At the end of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I give eternal life. God is the one who gives eternal life. Jesus is told to us as the creator, as the sustainer of creator, as the one who is, uh, and God also is the creator, the sustainer of creation. And listen to just some of these scripture verses. Romans 9, 5. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. God, the Son, he said, or but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, up, of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Titus 2, 13. The church is waiting for our blessed hope, the glory, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. John 20, verse 28, Tom, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Second Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, a, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 19, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells, or all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. These are just a smattering of text, loved ones, that remind us and teach us that Jesus was God. So Jesus, and this is, so hard, but it's truth. Jesus is both God and man. And what happened, and this is astounding to me, what happened when Jesus became a man was not substitution or, or division, but it was addition. He took upon himself human nature, which he never previously possessed. And he added humanity to his deity. And from then on into eternity, he will be God and man, two natures in one person. Forever. We read of the humiliation of Christ as he, 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 he left heaven and he took on flesh. Loved ones, forever. Forever. God and man will dwell together in one body. Last week, we considered the implications of the words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I hope we came to realize that no one is righteous, that no one seeks after God, and that if we were really honest with ourselves, the only conclusion that we can come to when we looked at all the scriptural texts is this, Bold confession, I have sinned against the Lord. The critical point, though, this morning is we are face-to-face, I think, with one of the most significant of all sins. It's the one sin that is above all others, which Jesus says will condemn you. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. I can't put it any more plainly than that, loved ones. Unless you believe that I am He, all that we have quickly looked at about Him, unless you believe that I am He, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, you will die in your sins. In another place, He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon him. This means that no matter how religious you might be, no matter how good you might be, no matter how you stand up against all the other people that you measure yourself against, you will spend eternity separated from God and in hell if you do not believe that Jesus is He. And you might say to me, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. Paul, hell simply because I reject the fact that Jesus Christ is God? That's the whole point of Christianity. That's at the heart of what we believe. You see, if if you reject what the Bible reveals to you about Jesus, you're rejecting God because it's God who has told us who Jesus is and what he is like. And if you reject what the Bible says to you about Jesus, what other hope do you have for salvation? What other way is there whereby which you might receive forgiveness of sins? 
How else will you receive eternal life? You see, if you come to the settled conclusion that Jesus is anyone other than the Bible reveals to him, what other option is there for you to be saved? If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to urge you to do that today. When Paul left Ephesus, he reminded his friends there that he had just one message for all his hearers, and it's the same message that resounds today, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The message has not been changed. The Bible is the same. This is God's command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. God now commands people everywhere to repent. It's not an option. It's not something that, that you can maybe do, maybe not do. I don't understand how this works, but it's clear that God commands all men everywhere to repent and to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Will you obey God this morning? Will you respond to the Word of God as the Holy Spirit stirs your heart? Will you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? We've said it so many times, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The work is done. The life has been lived. The penalty has been paid. All you need to do Say, Jesus, I trust you with my life. I give you my sins. Will you take away my guilt? Will you take away my shame? Would you give me eternal life? Would you change my nature, which is sinful, and make it one that is right and new, a new creation? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is, this is at the heart of Christian faith, loved ones. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus lives to save sinners. Turn to him this morning, would you not? Turn to him and be saved. And then as that song in that video said, which I love so much, let your life song sing to God. Father in heaven, 